Howdy. Thanks for listening to Let the Movie Speak. Before we get started, uh, we'd like to ask a favor of you. It's a simple favor. If you could just rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen, that might help other ears get into our ecosystem here and hear another episode. Anyway, enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jean Renoir, and I'm the author of the picture The Grand Illusion, and I'm very happy to present it to you. Well, if today I'm able to do it, it's just because I'm lucky. The negative... I wouldn't have got out of it without Ponsard. Renoir, reflecting on his own experiences in the Great War while promoting the re-release of his film, disclosed that his personal story was strikingly similar to that of those of the French pilots in The Grand Illusion. He was a pilot just like them, taking photographs behind enemy lines just like them. But unlike the cinematic de Beaujou and Maréchal, the real Renoir had the fortune of being rescued. He saved me. Ponsat had been shot down seven times, held prisoner seven times, and escaped seven times. Sometimes, the truth invents a story. The movie speaks. All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode seven of our first series. Uh, this is called "Let the Movie Speak" because we look uh, a little bit below the surface to try to find something that it's saying. Each film, each director, each screenwriter, each story. Justin, how are you this week? I am doing very well, uh, Monsieur. I feel like we should throw a little French into our conversation, yeah. Even if neither of us are fluent. Um, You're a little bit more the, fluent uh, than I am. I mean, well, yeah, I, I guess as a child is more fluent than a baby in speaking <laughs> English. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing well. Excited to uh, talk about this movie today, and excited we have some new folks joining us. Yes, uh, we're so happy to welcome our guest this week. Uh, a couple of friends of mine, amateur filmmakers, uh, Greg and Gary. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And Greg. I'm doing okay. Yeah, thanks. I kind of wish you just ended it with like, I'm terrible. <laughs> I was thinking about going there. <laughs> Not really. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're so happy to have them on and bring their perspective. Uh, but before we get into the grand illusion and what that means, uh, we're going to give a little preview into what we watched this week. I will say for myself, uh, a lighter week on the watching things front, but uh, spoiled off mic, I think me and Justin have the same what we watched this week, but I'll let I'll let Justin kick it off and, and reveal what that is and why it's significant. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know about significance, I guess you could argue, um, but uh, you and I both watched um, at least the first episode of WandaVision which is uh, Marvel's first show that they have uh, released on Disney+. Plus. I remember, Travis, when the trailer for this came out a few months ago. Yep. We watched it, not together, I don't think, but we watched it. I drove to your house, and I made you right. press the play button. Yeah, you said, sit down, <laughs> lad. Yeah. And I said, why are you talking to me like grandpappy? And you said, sit down! I said, WandaVision, <laughs> I thought, go. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh, 
It well, it just it looked really bizarre in a good way, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I are both fans of David Lynch, and this it's looked his oh, birthday today, by the way. Uh, the happy time, birthday, David! Yeah, at the time of recording, it won't be by the time you hear this, but happy birthday right. <laughs> now and forever, David you Lynch. Dated it? Yes, yeah, I, I dated it. I'm sorry. We, we love you, David. We wish you uh, good health and many more movies. And many more reports. movies, please. Oh, yes, exactly. Like one of his movies, guys. Yes. Um. So. <laughs> Yeah, this trailer for Back to WandaVision, it just looked a little bizarre. I mean, the concept is like they're in different sitcoms throughout yeah. the ages. Um, but then the trailer also gave us a little bit of uh, non-sitcom-y scenes, right? Oh, yeah. Like, uh, uh, you know, helicopter and, you know, people flying through the air, kind of typical Marvel stuff that you would expect. So I think you and I agreed, okay, well, if they lean more on the... The sitcom stuff, this could be really interesting, um, but if that's just kind of a gimmick to get viewers interested, then maybe shame on them. So, uh, you know, having only, I think we're only discussing the first episode right now, right? Yeah, I mean, you've watched the first couple, I've seen the first one, but just the gist of the show so far, yeah. Yeah, so I've seen the first two, you've seen the first one, and so far they are really sticking to... um, The the sitcom is what, that format drives this show so far, and... Rather than just being a kind of a weak, um, oh, they're playing dress up in you know sitcom land, the production, to their credit, uh, everyone involved has has committed heart and soul to making so the first episode ostentatiously or ostensibly takes place in nineteen uh, fifties kind of sitcom world, and it the the de- the attention to detail in the show seems to go so far beyond yeah, it's wild. you know just this the set or the you know the co- what the costumes or whatever it's the way the people talk and it's the writing is what astounded me the most yeah, travis for that sure. beat for beat i mean this is not these are not jokes that are written today for tv these are this is the pattern these are the jokes that are written for a show in the 50s and um and and then at the end of the episode there is that kind of turn where it suddenly becomes Lynchian and yeah. all is not as it seems or maybe Twilight Zoneish, yeah. Um, which and, is a, uh, which is apropos of the black and white square yes. aesthetic, all of that, yeah. Yeah, no, even the you say square, and I think even the aspect ratio is really clever that they're not <laughs> they're not shooting this in cinescope, yeah. Um, and and it it it's just such a fun bizarre world to be in. So I'm interested. I don't know what your take is, but I'm really interested in seeing where they go with this and if they can sustain the kind of, um, I mean, they have to kind of give you an answer, right? Sure. Um, I don't expect it's going to be as ambiguous as David Lynch's work. Yeah. Um, that would probably upset your average Marvel fan. (laughs) My, my advice is like, keep it weird, man. It's so much more interesting than the movie by committee that we get once a year from Marvel which is, you yeah. know, if it was fun for a while and some of them are better than others, like there, certainly there's value there, right? In like the popcorn sure. flick thing and they're well made for what they are, but like they are really starting to look like uh, a movie factory just pumping out, yeah. you know. You said once yeah. a year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was oh. like more than once a year. Yeah. <laughs> or I guess twice a year. They, like they thrice a year sometimes. Yeah. They used to do one a year and then they sort of started doing every six months and then it was like it was sort of a free for all. Yeah. Okay. I stopped watching them even once a year a few years back because it was like I'm 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 over. I've seen all of them. Yes, I I think I've seen most <laughs> of them, uh, but yeah, I I would say keep it weird. Uh, it's good when it's weird, especially in that first episode in the last you know ten minutes. 
Uh, it gets you really comfortable because like you said, it's really well done, really well written. If you've ever seen like leave it to beaver, the Dick Van Dyke show, the honeymooners, like it is straight out of that. I think Justin, you even told me they literally filmed it in front of a live studio audience. It's yeah, they, they went right. all in. And then the stuff that happens at the end, the weirdness is all the more effective for that reason. Uh, Agreed. It, it reels you in. So yeah, I'm, I'm on board for more, more WandaVision. Uh, Greg, Gary, uh, who wants to go first? What did you guys watch this week? Anything good? Uh, we watched Emma, which I think came out last year. Yeah. With, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. <laughs> right, Anya Taylor-Joy. Everybody knows that name. <laughs> right. And, uh, so it was good. It was, it starts out, like, I've seen a couple of, like, the Jane Austen period pieces, mm-hmm. but it starts out pretty, like, funny and quirky, and then kind of the second half it gets a little bit more, like, conventional, but... I really like the beginning, at least. So it's pretty good. Who's it, it directed by? Do you remember? Uh, Gary. Uh, uh, Autumn DeWild, who I don't know who that is. I think it might be the, her f- her first movie. First big, um, like studio flick. And it's, uh, I, I thought, I don't know. I don't know a ton about the movie, but yeah, it was really. A, and so when you say it started out kind of quirky, is that the word you used? Yeah. So <laughs> w- w- what, is that, what does that mean to you? That it started. What, what were some things that you liked that showed the movie had some kind of maybe distinct personality or something? Uh, there's just like little jokes. There's this guy like Bill Nye is in the movie, and like his whole character is like he's just like obsessed with like drafts coming into the windows, <laughs> yeah. and he has like these two servants like neurotic. move these um, like windshields around him throughout <laughs> okay. the movie. Yeah. And Bill Nye is amazing. Yeah, yeah. he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Emma, what was like what that was like twenty nineteen too, wasn't it? Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. It was like last one of the year, last yeah. movies in theaters yeah. before the shutdown. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then uh, there was another one you guys had. Yeah, and I saw a promising young woman, and that was really uh, kind of a conflicting movie. And uh, <laughs> it, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because it's kind of spoilery, but yeah. it's it's uh it's an experience, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, it kind of reminds me of like Thelma and Louise. Mm. And it's kind of a bummer to me that it didn't get like released in yeah. theaters because like, I just remember watching like also like get out in theaters. Like, I feel like those movies are kind of funny just for like the conversation. Cause it's definitely like kind of the same kind of movie. Like sure. Jordan Peele described get out as like a social thriller. And yeah, this would yeah. probably fall into the same category. So yeah. I remember seeing the trailer and thinking like, is it Blumhouse? No. Okay. Cause it's like Margot Robbie's production company. Okay. Or it feels like a Blumhouse movie, like from the trailer and everything to me. But that's Carrie Mulligan and kind of, yeah, like a thriller kind of mystery pseudo horror something. But not it's it's not straight horror, is it? No, it's not. Definitely okay. not. Okay. So uh, that's a that's a variance of uh, <laughs> things put on the table this week for what do we watch? I think it's time we uh, went back in time, Justin. Uh, by what 70 80 almost 80 years holy cow uh, yeah it's time to fire up the auto gyro i let's, think let's Take fire up yeah the auto gyro that is also a time machine uh i love the idea that that segue included the auto gyro because if you just like pop in for this episode you're like what is an auto gyro um yes the, that chitty chitty bang bang the, <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of you're not that far off uh anyway uh the auto gyro has landed folks and we are at the grand illusion 1937 
uh, French film. This is only our second uh, foreign movie. So uh, as much as I am fully aware, Justin, as I'm sure you are too, that, uh, you know, your average Joe, maybe even your average podcast listener isn't like, you know what I need? I need a podcast about movies, (laughs) but I need a podcast about movies from the 30s that are randomly chosen by people I don't know. (laughs) Um, Right. Uh, but that's do, our draw. That's our appeal. That's it. That's why people are, you know, in droves. Uh, they're flocking. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, second foreign film, and the first one was uh, Fritz Lang's M, which was. Well, I guess if we're if we're being strict, if foreign means non-American, yeah, we have to. Yeah, throw it's in called, they're films, called international right? films now, Travis. Fine, I meant foreign language <laughs> film. Is that okay? <laughs> well, it had English in it. I don't know. We'll have to. It had like three different languages. languages it had in it. some English in it, but it's a French movie. Anyway, we'll see if you get canceled later. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. By the French exclusively. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so 1937, this is uh, an interwar movie about World War One, about the Great War. Right. Um, so in our intro right. section here, it's worth noting um, that this was directed by Jean Renoir. And again, everybody, uh, I'm just going to do my best. Justin will have the real French pronunciations for these things. But uh, it stars... Uh, Jean Gabin, uh, and I think the biggest name on here was Eric von Stroheim. Uh, he was the, he was a, the draw if there was one from an acting perspective as, uh, Captain Rothenstein. Um, so, uh, any, any background or history stuff that, uh, we have, we can throw it in here. Uh, this is my first time seeing this film. Justin, is this your first time seeing this film? Yeah, it is. It is my first time. And, and like you, I don't think I really had many expectations at all um and uh just as a little preview of my thoughts guys uh i really enjoyed it um i thought this was great and um you know you can kind of tell um what mr Renoir uh was kind of striving for uh, i think it's pretty it comes across the screen pretty clearly um and i think it's telling you know if we're talking about background this movie is made in 37 um france is going to be occupied three years from then right and I think this movie has uh, quite a bit to say about a lot of themes, but including um, in maybe a more peripheral way that uh, the rise of fascism is not something to mess around with mm-hmm. and uh, is only going to end poorly. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah, I do agree. It it is it it kind of knocks a lot of pins down in the theme department. So it's tough to it's tough to distill mm-hmm. it down to one thing. I think we'll find. The ones yeah. that that hit us each the most uh, will kind of rise to mm. the surface. Um, so uh, that's that's about it for background. Um, obviously, uh, the director is sort of significant in this regard. He's super prolific, and uh, I think we also know from history, Justin, that his time in uh, Hollywood didn't go as planned. Is that correct? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Renoir was lucky enough to escape. Nazi Germany when France was getting overrun by that nation and uh he he came to Hollywood and Hollywood seemed happy to have him and so he directed some movies and it seems like his earlier um works there in the early 40s were you know somewhat somewhat well received um nothing kind of landmark um whereas like the movie we're watching today the grand illusion is regarded by you know, different film, you know, who's and critics, excuse me, critics as uh, one of the best pieces of cinema ever. Nothing in um, that he did in Hollywood had the fortune of giving him that kind of acclaim. And uh, towards the, the end of World War II in the late 40s, um, 
I know that some of his films were very financially unsuccessful and uh, kind of the result of a, um, you know, we were talking about the Marvel movies, right? The the movie by committee. Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, Renoir was not spared that um, despite his status in Europe. So he kind of gave up on Hollywood after after the war was over and uh, came back to Europe to make uh, many more films. So, Okay. So my first time, Justin's first time, Greg and Gary first time. Yeah. yeah. First time, first time. Okay, so we're all newbies to this. Let's see what it had to say. Okay, so let's uh, get into it. Uh, we'll start with our guests and kind of see what you guys, what, what's your initial impressions of the movie? How did you think it was? Uh, Gary, Greg, either one of you want to start us off? Uh, I, it felt kind of like episodic to me. Like I, I, I gotta be honest and say that I was kind of tired when I was watching this. So I don't <laughs> think I had the best watch, Yeah, but um, I think like it did feel kind of episodic to me. It felt like it was like, it felt like certain character relationships, like, they they got established. I don't know if this is just because I was too tired, but um, it felt like they weren't like established well enough to me hmm. to like come back later and supposed to be impactful. Although I do think it worked. The theme, I guess, I, I felt like it was. I I definitely felt like it felt somewhat prophetic in that it's like. Uh, well, are we like spoiling? I guess we're. Spoiling oh yeah, this there's thing, it's yeah. seventy years old. I think <laughs> <laughs> people are going to get around to it. They will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it felt like it was like the uh they. They mentioned illusion like three times in the movie, which mm-hmm. is funny because like me and Greg will enter these contests sometimes. Like the theme is like, like it's like a one word theme, mm-hmm. and like um, people always the the entries people always like have somebody say the theme, and it's like <laughs> no, don't do that. Yeah, but like this movie, so whenever they said that, it felt kind of like that. It was like we gotta say the theme now. It's mm. called the Grand Illusion. Let's say illusion. So yeah, I don't know. Just the idea at the end that it's like war is kind of inevitable. Mm-hmm. And it's going to happen again. And it's like this this war feels like it's going on forever. But really, I don't know. At one point, I think he says the war is going to end soon. But that's an illusion. Yeah, and a couple then, times that character mentions that. He's like, well, the war will be over before that. The war will be over before that. Right? right. That's a recurring thing. Yeah. And they mentioned that being an illusion. And then at the end, it's kind of like ominous because it's like, huh, there will never be another war after this. It's this like, was oh, maybe before World War Two, Right. So it's yeah. like, how, I mean, how early did they know that it was going to be like, World War II was going to happen when this was being made? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is released in 37. So safe to say, I think it's, you know, filming in 35, 36, yep. and maybe part of 37 too. So, you know, really the war starts and I mean, I guess it depends on how you define the start yeah. of World War II. But if you define that as Germany annexing part of Czechoslovakia, you know, you're looking at um, 38 and by 39, yeah. It's just overrunning all of its neighbors, and right. then by 40, it's pretty much taken over all of Europe. So um, it does, it, I think Lenoir is a little, like you said, I think prophetic is the right word. Um, I think he's paying attention to the world around him and is seeing that, you know, wait a minute, we just, <laughs> we just had a war uh, tw- not even 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and here we are with some nation states gearing up for round two. So I think he saw what was coming, um, but maybe didn't realize how soon um, it would come. Yeah. So, I mean, story-wise, uh, we've got, uh, I don't know if you would call him the main character, but I guess a pair of main characters, really. Um, uh, Marichal and Baudou, Um these are the two guys who, they, they they end up from the beginning to the end. We see where they start and where they end, end up. You, you do uh, 
kind of get people attached to them along the way who stick around for a while. But would you say that the kind of the center of the story, Justin, overall? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah. So we've got um, yeah. a pilot, right? Um, uh, in the beginning. Uh, and there's a kind of a neat trick storytelling wise that I liked. Uh, it's a little jarring, but like you're watching the first sequence and it's a bar and uh, he gets called in to talk to, uh, well do. And he says, we got to go, you know, basically retake some photographs of some, some aerial photographs. Cause there's, there's a, a spot that's unclear. And then they really just cut to another bar sort of room, like a little private area. It looks like it's in a hangar or, you know, somewhere. And, uh, Marichelle has a, uh, <laughs> a cast on, right. And they just, they, they, they don't do anything like big action packed explosions, you know, back no. projection, you know, they just tell you and mm -hmm. it's like, uh, they're, uh, they've been shot down, you know? Um, and it just kind of zips you right into the story and gets you to, you know, one of the most interesting characters in the movie which is, uh, you know, Rothenstein. Um, so what did you think of like the first act, Justin, overall? Yeah, I, I loved it. Like you, that that hard shift from one bar to the, you know, sort of German bar is, um, it, it's kind of brilliant to me. And I think it sets the tone for what, what Lenoir wants to say. I think he assumes of the audience that they're going to agree with him that war is bad mm -hmm. and that war is not something to be glamorized. And so he has no interest in showing you that he has no there's no point in him showing you some battle in the trenches right or some dogfight that he probably i mean this this guy has a real you, you know even if this wasn't your your favorite movie i think you'd be hard pressed to make an argument that this guy didn't know how to craft a film um and and so i think he had enough maybe foresight or insight into what was possible in 1937 to say, if I do an aerial anything, it's going to look bad, <laughs> and and it's also not the point of the story. Yeah, um, you know, and so I I find it really interesting that this is a war movie that has no sequences of war in it, mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, so I, I love the setup, and I don't know, you know, I I would agree with with our guests that it it did seem this movie is rather episodic or maybe more like a like a chapter book. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would be, uh, hard pressed maybe to know where the first act ends. I'm and, not saying, I'm not trying to disagree with you and be petty about nothing, but I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't know exactly where, you know, the, the movie moves to a lot of different places and, uh, and involves a lot of, a lot of different characters that, that, um, are frankly, I think movies that are kind of operating on this scale with this many characters frequently fall in the trap of not giving enough screen time. Right. If we want to bring up Marvel again, look at Avengers Endgame or whatever. You know, it's like what what is going on? There's just a gazillion characters in in spandex. Yeah. Um. But but this movie does a really good job of I think doing um, due diligence and and giving service to all of the characters. They all have an arc, and uh and even side characters. You know, who were introduced to like at the first Prisoner of War camp. Yeah. Um. I think that that kind of sets the tone too for. Every character that you experience is presented as a human being. Mm -hmm. Nobody is reduced to uh, wooden or car. So, like so a you even have, like you know, that, yeah. the right. You even have the German guard, you know, as they're going over the rules for, hey, this is how things are going to go in the prison camp. And the uh, one one guy is reading the rules, and the other guy who's got this amazing German mustache from, you know, the Prussian Empire. Um, he says, uh, he says, you know, it's strictly verboten. It's forbidden. And he keeps saying it, you know, so you get, you get the impression that this guy is, 
is hard nosed as a character, um, but that's that's kind of the closest that that in in my opinion anyway that you get to a real villain in this movie. Yeah, nobody is shown to be like a Hitler or or you know just a murderous soldier or something. Um, they're they're all deeply human, and I found that really fascinating. Yeah, it manages to humanize you know all these different people of war, right? Various you know ranks of military folk, and uh, you know they all kind of identify. You know, there's some talk about oh well, he's an officer and he's not an officer, and sometimes that's you know a little significant, but mostly mm-hmm. it's like I'm a soldier. You know what I mean? They almost all right. refer to themselves as soldiers, and they. There's a there's a clear sense, uh, no matter you know which part of the story you're in, that like they're like this is who they are now. Like war has turned them into mm-hmm. like their identity is this, um, and they, you know, they hate it but they love it at the same time. You know, there's a huge amount of conflict. Some more than others. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, and uh, but yeah, human humanized characters for sure. And I think that's helped by. Um, the script is, is really good. Uh, the com- committed actors all around, like there's not a performance in here that I was like, oof, you know, everybody's pretty right. good, um, to great. I would say there's some really good subtle stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, th- it also asked the question, uh, not just about war or being a soldier, right? It asked the question about like people imprisoned, you know what I mean? Uh, I kept thinking about yeah. like, uh, our idea of, you know, prisoners of war or war camps. Uh, you know, I feel like if you are um, an American with with no firsthand experience at that, the first thing you go to is like Auschwitz or something, like the worst possible, yeah. you or know. Or Guantanamo. Yeah, or, or Gitmo. Yeah, exactly. It's like these are the, you know, horrors of humanity <laughs> uh, at their worst. Yeah. And it, this is presented in a way that that, you know, None of this, none of this seeks to justify war or like this type no. of conflict. In fact, the opposite. But it does show you the people in the situations that were probably a lot more prominent a lot of the time, right? And like yeah. l- less commonly told, um, especially in that first camp where um, there's so many people packed into a room around a you know a, a dinner table, you know, essentially just yeah. eating dinner together and having a conversation. Um, there's no romanticizing of being a soldier and, and patriotism, but yeah. there's like a statement of matter of factness about all that. Um, Greg, what, what stuck out to you as particularly uh, memorable from character to theme or anything like that? Well, you guys are talking about how they're, they're so nice or like the, the character or the, everyone's a humanized or whatever. Um, but yeah, like everyone in the camp is like so nice to them. Yeah. Kind of like the scene in, um, good fellas where they go to prison like mm. and like they're just you know making dinner or whatever right right the the spot that i started writing more notes on justin where i i immediately yeah. was like okay this is this is getting into the meat of it now honestly the first probably half hour i just watched i just watched i didn't write anything <laughs> down and uh i started writing notes as soon as someone said out there children play like soldiers in here soldiers play like children and i think yeah. that, i believe that's what do's line um what mm-hmm. what do you have to say about that portrayal uh, of uh, Pierre Fresnay? Beautifully pronounced on my part as Boudou. <laughs> Just a- as the character, yeah. you mean? Because uh, he's, he's a real through Boudou. line, right? Like, I mean, he's in the first scene mm-hmm. to the last scene. Not exactly the last scene because he really is out of the... You know, if this was yeah. Breaking Bad or like any of your modernly cut 
mm-hmm. you know, movie series. That whole last sequence where they end up in a, you know, like co- cottage farm area with a woman. Yeah. That would be like that would be like the season finale or it would be like the flash forward that gets cut into the the cold open mm-hmm. of every thing. Yep, but, exactly. So he's not in that section for obvious reasons. Uh he did. Uh but yeah. what do you think about him as a character and the portrayal? Yeah, I mean, uh you said it. He is portrayed um, or acted, I guess, um, in really masterfully. And, and like you, Travis, I, I have no complaints with it, with anyone, uh, Dita Parlo or Eric von Stroheim. I mean, everyone is is amazing, um, which I think speaks to their own talents and to the and to the direction in this movie. Um, but I I did find that the relationship between um, Bolju and um, Raffenstein is really. Uh, that's not maybe the main thrust of the movie, but but I, I would also agree it'd be hard to say like no 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 these these are the main characters of the movie and these are B characters. Yeah, I don't think the movie makes it that clear, and I don't think it really has the intention of doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, kind of like real life, um, you know, unless you're a narcissist and then you're the A character, I guess. But um, so you have you know this relationship between Bolju and and Raffenstein. And they kind of bond with each other because they're both from like the upper crust of right. their respective nations, and and it's not just that, but they they find out through talking to each other that they're like mutual acquaintances, and they know the same people, they've been to the same restaurants, they they enjoy the same sports, and so that really, you know, if if you're gonna have a villain in this movie, I think in the hands of a lesser writer or director, um, Raffenstein is the villain for sure. Right? Because he is the guy that shoots down <laughs> Maréchal and Bolju, and then he is the guy that is now the commandant because uh, he's like disabled. He has a monocle. Um, Let's not forget. He has a <laughs> uh, he has a monocle, yeah. and and yet he's not reduced to you know mo- he's not uh, Colonel Clink. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know he he is a fully developed um, character, and I I found some of the conversations between um, between those characters Bolju and. Raffenstein to be some of the most enlightening and and some of the most human. You know, you have Raffenstein who's taking care of his one geranium flower. Right. You know, um, it, it just really really beautiful moments in there. Um, that that really again, I think I mentioned uh, we talked about how this movie humanizes everyone, but it it almost does more than that. Um, if that's possible, it's it it's like it goes beyond just saying, "Hey, we're, can't we just all get along?" and says. If you if you spend enough time with somebody, and if you have the same experiences with them, w- what kind of a crazy world is it that you're going to turn around one day and pick up a gun against them? If they've done nothing personally against you, mm-hmm. you're going to do that just because the political power has told you to. And I think that has a lot to do, we mentioned how, how much that, that word illusion is used in the movie. And, um, and, and I later read that um, Renoir lifted that from an from a book by a, uh, a British journalist, which is called The Great Illusion. Um, and, and the kind of thesis of that book is that, you know, there's no point in war um, because everyone, we've all got the same, it was kind of way predated the European Union because uh, I think that was written just at the turn of the century there. But mm-hmm. he was saying, look, we all have the same, we all just want to get along to get along. So um, can't we just do that instead of having these wars and, and under the under the guise that you know war is prosperous? He's saying no, it's not. And and so yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit away from your your initial question about Bolju and Raffenstein, but I think their relationship in particular really b- because everyone else in the movie they have relationships with each other, but it's usually within their own nation, you know, yeah. or their own army or whatever. And these two guys totally cross that. That's right. 
Yeah. And their, their conversations, they contain like so many thematic elements of the movie, yeah. right? Like, uh, the, the thing about, uh, R- Rothenstein bringing up, uh, the names Rosenthal or Marischal, right? Mm-hmm. Just because of their names, you know, there's yeah. a, there's a conversation about, uh, you know, you could argue a couple things, right? Like it could be ethnicity or like just, you know, yep. uh, uh, you know, geographical, uh, mm-hmm. heritage all, or like class too. Right. And I think that's the class is all the way through here because Rosenthal's wealthy, even though he's a prisoner of war and, right. uh, he is Jewish and that, that comes up, you know, mm-hmm. as being, you know, inherently tied to one another. And sometimes for, uh, the, the good or just the observational sometimes for the bad, like the worst thing you can imagine. Right. right. Um, so they, they kind of dance around the idea of class, you know, and culture mm-hmm. clash and also the ticking of time, right? Like they're both aging yeah. men. These are the right. two older of all the characters and they have a particular conversation where, uh, <laughs> what is, uh, well, actually the tick, the tick of time happens twice. The first one I was thinking of is you see, uh, Marichal get sent to the, the, uh, solitary confinement. And then you see him yeah. go, go a little bit nuts, which is, uh, pretty, pretty correct and uh, true to life. Right. Yeah. Um, and he's screaming in there. I, I need to hear a voice. I need to hear a French voice. And this again, kind German officer mm-hmm. comes in and offers him everything he can. He offers him cigarettes. He offers him, uh, and finally a harmonica, right? It's like, here's just take something. And then the, uh, on his way out, he's, passing another guard and the guard says, what was he yelling about? And he just says the war's too long. You know what I mean? Like there's this idea of like, it just marches on and marches on. And then, uh, Boadu brings up the idea of like class diseases, you know, in this sort of humor, semi humorous monologue, you know, he talks about, well, when you're rich, you get this disease. And when you're, you know, middle class, Mm -hmm. you get intestinal ailments or whatever. Um, and he says, we'd each die of our own class diseases. If war didn't make all germs equal. So like, his character is like the beating heart of, I think, everything the screenwriter is trying to say. What the what what Renoir is trying to say, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, what about the sequences, guys? Because I think uh, it's clear that this is really influential, right? Like, this is not the only breakout of prison movie that exists. It's not the only breakout of prisoner of war movie that exists. So, where do you see uh, influences, Gary, from this to other stuff you might have seen? Definitely, uh, I kind of was wondering at one point if this was like a, a, or if The Great Escape was a remake of this. Yeah, it really does feel like it in some ways. Yeah, well, because like just the part where he's digging in the digging the tunnel is pretty similar to a, a scene where he's digging in the t- over. They're digging the tunnel to escape the prison. Yeah, and then I I don't know, Greg, do they move prisons in? in no, it's or? it's no. all in the same. There's the tunneling, which is really similar, mm-hmm. and dirt the in dirt, the garden. Yeah, the, yeah the, that's what I was gonna say, uh, Greg. The dirt, it, the disposal of the dirt is like the same. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, dropping it kind of through the. I think they use a bag in this movie, but like they're kind of marching around in the Great Escape, and they just like dust it out all over the ground. That was exactly yeah. the same. That feel. I mean, look, like like the intro said, right? Like this is this is cold from I'm sure lots of experiences and and word of mouth tales. So I'm sure someone somewhere did that. Right. And that's why it ended up in this movie. And then it's why it ended up in the great escape or whatever. But yeah, there's that. Um, I think at the end, right. uh, I think Steve McQueen is like trying to drive his motorcycle over to Switzerland or something. That's right. 
Yeah, and that that's what they do at the end of this movie when the guys are same destination. At yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I think there's definitely imprint of the escape stuff in this movie uh, further on down the line. Uh, I thought about when he's in solitary confinement, Justin. Uh, you know, he's like not really digging. He's just like scraping at the wall with a spoon, and the guy comes in and he yeah. says, "What are you doing?" And he says, um, I'm, "I'm digging a hole so I can escape." And he's like <laughs> losing it a little bit. Right. But like, isn't that the germ for like? All of the imagery in the Shawshank Redemption and you yeah, know, these other escape, escape from movie. Alcatraz or something like that. That's too. the other one that came to mind, oh, yeah. which is yeah, the Clint Eastwood flick. Uh, what, what do you think about the influence of this movie, Justin, on other stuff you might have seen? Yeah, it's it's undeniable, and and frankly, it's more you know I I mean you and I don't don't claim and and don't have a right to claim that we know it all by any stretch of the imagination. But based on how um, influential this has been, as we just discussed, at least to that genre of movies and probably to more than that, um, I'm kind of surprised we haven't heard more about this movie. Yeah, Um, It's just so... uh, And, you know, what's interesting to me, Travis, is that there's other other movies where things are lifted from, right? And, And when movies lift from an earlier movie, oftentimes they can make it better. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. And I... I, even though I, I'm a fan of The Great Escape, I'm not trying to poo-poo any of the movies that were just mentioned. Um, but this this is not really the, the the premise of this movie is not let's have an escape movie. Sure, you know it's it's a part of it, but it's also it's just done done to a different end goal, I think. Um, and so that that's part of maybe the the kind of futile comparison. But I was really impressed that all of everything in this movie stands the test of time. You know, in the earlier episode, we talked about M. That might have been our first episode, actually, huh? Yeah, that was episode number and, one. Uh, yeah. and, and so that is a movie that is uh, pretty much perfect, in my opinion, um, and has really, even though there's so many new modern, you know, technologies and, and effects and, you know, different methods of acting and things even, uh, that movie and, and now this movie, The Grand Illusion, they they don't seem to have lost an ounce of their potency. And, no, I don't think and, so. As much as, you know, Europe, uh, thankfully, does not seem to be on the brink of another war again in uh, 2021 when we're recording this, mm-hmm. it, it it's still a a timeless message and something you can't you can't talk about enough. I don't think you can't remind people enough that that it is so much better to find commonality and to work through differences peacefully instead of taking up arms and and just I I think this movie points out how dangerous nationalism is yeah for and sure. taken to any it doesn't mean that no you shouldn't have any patriotism or you know take pride in your country or any of that I I think this movie is pointing out if you if you give your allegiance to a nation that says we need to declare war on those people over there those people are bad then uh, I, I think Lenoir wants to encourage us to to really consider soberly um, whether or not that is truth or that's a illusion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I will say for influences, um, you know, the the only thing that makes this uh, this type of movie stand the test of time is is that it it gives something off right to the next uh, generation of film to the next generation of filmmakers, yeah. and uh, for sure we see. I think some really clear, uh, you know, sequence borrowing or details or whatever. For sure, for sure, there's that great escape, escape from Alcatraz, the escape movies. But I also thought of a couple more, uh, even more modern ones than that, which is 
that whole sequence when they, you know, uh, uh, Marshall and uh, who's the guy he's with? What's his name? Rosenthal. Rosenthal. Duh. Uh, they escape together uh, and barely make it as comrades, as friends, right? There's yeah. a really, uh, I think, really powerful moment where they turn on each other in, in, in frustration and exhaustion. Uh, and this movie does a really good job of showing people like at their absolute lowest wits end kind of mm -hmm. base level, but they make it to this, uh, farm they're hiding in a shed and the, this woman takes them in, uh, which is all really interesting, right? Because they're in a prisoner of war camp and they're treated with mostly kindness and respect and humanity. They escape it because it is prison after all, no matter how nice. Uh, they end up at this remote location. This woman, who is a German woman, right, uh, who had a uh, German uh, husband, brothers, and father, uh, who all died in battle. And she names off all of those people and the battles they died in, right? Uh, and even so, she takes these two men in and she's kind to them and feeds them and, and, and tends to his wounds and all that. She has a particular line that I could not, I couldn't, I couldn't shake it as far as references go, which is, uh, I don't know how many other people here uh, are are aware of musicals like I am, but I'm sure you've heard of Les Miserables. Uh, and there's an entire number in that song called "Empty Chairs at Empty Tables," right? Well, there's there's a couple like lines about tables in this movie, but this specific one is when she says. All the stuff she says, that's my husband, he died in this battle. That's Those are my brothers and my uh, father, they died in these battles. And then she turns to the table and she just said, the table's too big now. And it's empty, right? And just her daughter's sitting there. And I'm like, okay, Les Miserables came a, a few years later. It's about the French Revolution and there's a whole song called Empty Chairs and Empty Tables. It just seems like, uh, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you have one without the other? Um, and yeah. in addition to that, the environment and uh, the feel of it, especially the moment, the shot. Um, I don't know if you guys notice this when they're in the house and she gives him a piece of bread and some milk and he just takes a swig of it. And then you hear marching feet, right? You hear the Germans mm -hmm. marching outside and there's this great like sweeping pan shot of everybody just going dead silent and the room gets bigger. Uh, that moment where they're all frozen for a second in such tension and the fact that milk plays a key scene and we've seen the the milk cow more than once, that feels like the opening sequence of a Tarantino film. I think we've probably all watched, right? Uh, I think uh, the line is, to you and your cows, I uh, give my compliments or something like that. Yeah. From Christoph yeah. Waltz's character, the Jew hunter. Uh, and yeah, I just think like these things do not exist out of pure coincidence, right? This movie rings, I think, through a bunch of decades. Uh, did you guys notice anything else like technically or, you know, particularly Im Im impressive or of note? Um, I guess two things. Also, it reminded me of like 1917. Um, oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. In 1917, there's a part where he meets this woman and oh, he, yeah. he has like the milk with him. And then he, Why is everybody like, drinking milk in these yeah. moments? I mean, I guess there's common drink, right? It came from a cow. It's right there, but right. that and is that, interesting. Yeah. I was kind of wondering like what what you would think the parallel was there just movies where they kind of like they're usually very male centric i guess when they're about war and then like there's like a female they like meet like a female character and yeah. like they they usually have like a kid and it's like kind of like going back to like the family yeah out there and um because in 1917 she has a baby and she's trying yeah. to keep the baby quiet and it is a, it is it is rather similar uh actually now that you mention it yeah so i 
yeah, I don't know how that plays into the theme of both those movies, but um, they're also both about World War One. Yeah, I think it is it it is an interesting note that you make about um, how females are represented in this movie. While there's definitely not a surplus of them, you know, the early on in the movie when they are going to stage that kind of vaudeville show. Um, or the, like the Christmas show, and uh, they get all the women's costumes. Um, you know, there's quite a frenzy for that, and then they have the one <laughs> one dude put on all the women's clothes, right? And he yes. walks out, and the room goes dead silent. Okay? Yeah, and and it's not it's not any I I at least I didn't get any weird kind of like this isn't some kind of weird you know where today we'd call that like prison syndrome or something yeah. you know where there's some, any kind of overt sexual overtone to that but it seems much more like just a deep sadness yes. and a despair and a longing for these guys like oh my gosh i have not seen a woman in so long you know and it doesn't feel like they're like oh my gosh look at there's a woman right there they're like you can you can sense it that they're like that's not that's not it <laughs> right yeah like, yeah uh, it reminds me of but it is not yeah yeah, I think that's a really interesting, eerie moment because it's all like fun and games and they're all like, oh my gosh, remember, uh, or I hear the women's uh, hair is short now and, you know, I hear yeah. the, the dresses are just below the knee now, you know, all these, yeah. you know, scandalous things. And then that moment happens and it just dies. Uh, yeah. It, that's really, yeah. That's really interesting. And I think uh, the portrayal of, of Elsa as a character is really good too. She's not, she's she has agency right she's she's right. making her own choices uh and on her own volition and i she's really well played uh by Dita Parlo uh yeah and it i think you know Lenoir is kind of masterful in in showing us this well and i guess the the screenplay Mr. Spock i think yeah not Spock but Spack um who who wrote this <laughs> In showing that that you know Elsa's household is the prime example of the real cost of war. Yes, it it affects all the men who are fighting in it in the First World War. Of course, it does, and and it's not to minimize their the the toll that takes on on anyone. But then you have Elsa at home, who who like you said, she's lost every male in her life is dead yeah. and taken from her just under the auspices that, you know, we have to fight this war, we have to win. And now she is a widow, and she has no one left to just care for her, like you said, at the empty table with uh, with just her child. And I think that, like, if that's not going <laughs> to get you to think, hmm, maybe I should really, you know, kind of do a double take um, before going to war myself for anything, you know, I don't know what, what would, frankly. Uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. Um, as we uh, get into... Our final section here, having covered uh, some of the good and the great and the uh, whatever, we're just we we hit a lot of the 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 we we whacked a lot of moles, Justin. Um, yeah, I think they're all down right they're, now. They're pretty much now whack one more mole. Please, oh get it, yeah. get it. Um, I just like the. <laughs> Did you Travis... ever think you would come on and say, "Can I whack one more mole"? <laughs> uh, what when you were mentioned in the scene where they kind of like turn against each other. That was like, I don't know, you got you guys kind of emphasized and recontextualized how I was thinking about this movie. And um, just because you mentioned there's like no battle, there's no war scenes. Yeah. And there's, um, I don't know, you just more, you kind of make me remember more of the subtlety of it. And uh, yeah, definitely that scene where they were on the cliff was where it like really got to me where it was like they're, they're yelling at each other and they're not like, like in a modern movie, they would probably be more overtly angry. Mm -hmm. seeming but like 
the the danger like it's shot on like kind of long lenses there's there's like a danger to that scene because they're like on this big hillside and you can just see like yeah. this this like drop behind them even though i don't know yeah just the way it's the way it was framed it was like he's right next to this cliff and it's like i feel like one of them is going to go off that cliff but thankfully it doesn't happen so there's yeah. tension <laughs> in the visual representation of it because yeah. it's wider than it should be to make you comfortable it's also like when you see all the land around them from those wide shots you think like someone could just arrive right even though they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere it's like if you're screaming at each other because you're frustrated and his foot hurts and you don't want him to slow you down but then it's like well that that's what gets you caught after all this you want them to find you know mm -hmm. some kind of safety so that's a that's an excellent observation justin i have one more question before we get into is it worth your time uh tell me about the white gloves <laughs> tell you about the white gloves so you're talking about when uh Bulju puts on his uh parade dress gloves before yeah, there's a um, there's a there's a lot of fuss made about him, right? Like they in, playing his flute. Yes, they're introduced uh, to Rothenstein's character. Uh, yes, there's a fuss made about them there. Um, yes, there's a specific line about them with uh, Marichal and Baldu where he says, you know, no doubt about it, the gloves, the tobacco, uh, we've got nothing in common, and he, yeah. you know, Baldu makes a point of. Uh, you know, wearing those to the bitter end. Uh, so what yeah. do you think the significance is there? I thought that that imagery was really purposeful, but I don't know that I I hit the nail on the head with understanding it. Uh, my takeaway from that is, you know, in, in the military, even today, at least in the American military, the white glove inspection is still sometimes a thing. Um, and it's less and less, it seems like the army, and which is where, where I served a few, several years ago, um, it's becoming less and less formal and more casual, kind of um, keeping in check with American traditions and cultures. But the white glove inspection is traditionally, you know, um, to, to maybe check your service rifle and see how clean it is. The idea being, if the glove comes up dirty, it's going to be really freaking obvious because it's a white glove. <laughs> but the white glove is also used for, you know, I incredibly, um, the, the most opulent or the most formal of occasions mm -hmm. um like heads of state sort of a thing and certainly in you know post-world war ii uniforms for all you european nations have gotten a lot less formal but here we're, we're presented with these two guys um who are both again from you know the the elite sort of of their own uh aristocracies and their respective nations and and dress means means everything to these people. You know there there is a there is a dress code for everything. You you are in a perfectly good you know beautiful suit, and it's like well I have to go change now. It's dinner time. Time for my tuxedo. You know, and so you 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 have these the dress. I guess what I'm trying to say simply is the dress code means something. Yeah. And the white glove. It, there's no way to surpass that for for that era and for that method of dress especially in military dress if you're putting on your formal dress uniform you're not going to have anything dressier than white gloves mm -hmm. and so i think raffenstein you know uh sipping his coffee or what he he dismisses as really bad coffee yeah and wearing his white glove is is maybe that film trying to show us that that character is trying so hard to hold on to the trappings of an aristocracy that is falling all around him. And, and frankly, by the end of the war, it's not going to exist in most of Europe, including um, Prussia or restructured Germany or right. whatever. And and then for uh, Bolju, the you know, he, he has this real sense, not of despair. Raffenstein seems to kind of despair that the aristocracy is going away, and Bolju seems much more okay with it. And mm -hmm. he's even willing to give his life 
for that so that these men that are, you know, quote unquote, lesser than him in social standing, at least, can escape. And he sort of, I think, sees that that tide coming where these guys are, it's not going to matter, you know, what family line I'm from, what castle I grew up in. It, it's not going to be the same world anymore after this war. And so I think he, he goes out with a, with a bang, or he goes out with a white glove in this instance. And I think him dressing up in, in the, the formalist attire that he can is, is maybe the equivalent of him, even though he doesn't die immediately in that scene. It's yeah. him knowing that he thinks he's headed to his death and that he wants to go out in the most, the most beautiful way possible for that, um, that generation and, and that, kind of, uh, that part of society. It's his coffin look. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay, well, let's bring it home, fellas. Uh, I feel like we've done a pretty good cursory deep dive into the Grand Illusion, but um, we're going to go around the, the, the figurative table and uh, give our, our rating and review, a concise rating and review. The key question here is how often would you rewatch this? Uh, if it's a terrible movie, you probably never rewatch it. But sometimes when it's a good movie, you don't need to rewatch it, but a couple times more in your life for various reasons. So um, we'll start with Gary and go, uh, you know, counterclockwise <laughs> around the world. Uh, what did you think, Gary? Uh, I would probably need to do more research before I watched it again because the, just the quote you read at the beginning made it a lot more, kind of gave me some more context into it. Yeah, probably. I know there's like a Criterion release of this, although it said it was out of print, but probably. Yeah, where'd you watch it? That's a good question. Uh, I, I just rented it on Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have a question for all of you before we finish this up. Did you have a really weird freaking thing at like an hour and 46 where there's a cut that was so obviously like an issue with the print? It's like he goes in for that like embrace and almost kiss of Elsa and then it just oh, goes yeah. like rain and it I don't know Justin what copy you watched where but there's a really funky moment and so you you rented it on Amazon I yeah. rented it on YouTube it's probably the same probably the probably. same print, and that you know guys that may be the only one that exists right because um when the Nazis came through uh, they said they wanted to destroy every copy of this movie because it was anti-war and yes. therefore bad Nazis like war so they destroyed all of them, but then and Renoir thought the movie was lost. And then when yeah. he came back to France, <laughs> he found one copy, one oh negative that the Nazis had preserved. So it could be hmm. that on that that one negative, maybe, um, somebody, maybe that that some, glitch was in there. Somebody spilled their their bad coffee uh, on the on the one print. So you'd watch it again, Gary, for sure. You'd watch it again. Yeah. And uh, Greg, what about you? Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to watch this movie again, but. <laughs> Like I, that, it was it was good for uh, what it was. I guess. What, okay, here's the real question: Would you watch The Great Escape again? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. I think uh, I definitely. Just, I had kind of a shallow reading of it, but okay. I think I'm just a shallow movie watcher. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think definitely like Citizen Kane though was a movie where it was like the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, whatever. I didn't I didn't get it, and then like the second time I watched it. I had a lot more of the context. Yeah. And like also seeing these kind of movies in the theater is really cool. Yeah. When, it, when you're able to. So if I saw it playing in a theater, I would probably try yes, to catch it. Yes, we would go, Gary, <laughs> me and you. If it was playing at the Paramount in Oakland, we would be there for sure. Um, Justin, uh, give us your, is it worth your time? Yes, I would definitely watch this again. Uh, it's worth my time. It's a movie that's very much 
up my alley. Um, if you like movies that have something to say, a la the title of our podcast, then uh, I, I think people would enjoy this greatly. Um, and I'm sorry, Gary and Greg, this is the first time we've met. Sorry, listeners, the veil is unveiled. Um, <laughs> which one of which one of you just said you had a shallow reading of this Greg. movie? Greg said that. Greg? Okay. So, I mean, I just want to point out, I don't think you should feel bad about that. Like, you know, like like you said earlier, um, maybe this was off mic before we started, you know, movies in the 30s are, are way, way different than the yeah. way that movies are made today. And so I, I don't think there's... It's like, I, I don't know, it's like if you read an old book or something, you know, like Charles Dickens or, or right. whatever, Robinson Crusoe, you know, you have to... The, there, there's more work involved, I guess, in getting acclimated with, you know, maybe the, the timing or, you know, the the kind of tropes or, or whatever of the time. So, I don't know. I just want to, as someone that loves movies, probably no surprise, but it sounds like you guys love movies too. I would just encourage you, you know, the the more you watch stuff from this era or whatever, the less weird or, or maybe out of sync with modern films it seems to be at least for for my money i know that the more i watch of old stuff the more i kind of see how it's all intertwined through history so i hope that doesn't sound like i'm I'm preaching to you greg i'm just (laughs) you know just suggesting that um you know you you may if if you're up for it and you know not everyone is which is fine but if you're up for it i think the more stuff you maybe watch from from this era and and beyond the more you might enjoy it um but but that being said, um, I guess my last comment on this, gentlemen, would be that, um, you know, Travis, I think you and I have talked a little bit in previous episodes about how people are all the same. And, right. and so it doesn't matter what era, what year the movie's from, we can still see themes where, where people are the same. And this movie delivers it in spades, but, but sadly, on a darker note, this also shows that people can, can really screw things up and make things a lot worse. Um, and I don't know about you, but for my money, I would way rather be a prisoner of war in 1916 in any European nation that was following the Geneva Convention strictly, as per, uh, um, depicted in this movie, versus anything that came after. Um, and and so I think sadly today, and I'm not just saying because the Nazis did bad stuff in World War II. Heck no. I'm talking about the Americans locking up Japanese. Right. I'm talking about uh, Guantanamo Bay. I'm talking about, you know, um, extraordinary rendition uh, that we still do today. It's the the kind of decency that is presented in this movie, which is directly related to the humanity. Man, that that is a goal I think the world should be still shooting for today. And if anything, while we don't want to go back to, you know, like dysentery and gangrene from 1916, <laughs> I would think we probably want to go back to the way that we treated our fellow man, yeah. even yeah. under the worst circumstances. It's bad enough we're fighting a war. Do I really need to make your life more of a living hell inside the prison that you're now kept in? You know, and I think the movie suggests, no, you don't. You're still human, and that's what matters, and that's how I'm going to treat you. So for my money, um, yeah, I, I would watch this uh, plenty more, and, and I expect to probably watch it again rather sooner than later. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Uh, I feel like I, you know I liked it. Uh, I, I feel like I almost loved it, but the more I watch this, the more I'm going to like it. I can just tell. Like it's 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 such a well made movie, but more than that, what it's saying is so varied and layered and nuanced like the line that i wrote down and circled like as the the key thing for me is the exchange between Boldu and uh rafenstein on his uh deathbed on Boldu's deathbed right 
There's yeah. this great exchange between them where you see the compassion of people. You see, uh, you know, well, do do a a, a very uh, aware uh moment of self-sacrifice, right? To just climb those rocks and keep them distracted and just keep going. And even when Rothenstein says, you know, please, please stop, you know, stop yeah. or I'm going to have to shoot you. Um, uh, Boaldu says, I would, I do the same exact thing. You know, they have such a ridiculous respect for each other, even in the midst of the ugliness. And then when he's on his deathbed, he comes and he says like, I'm, he apologizes for missing his leg. You know what I mean? Uh, he's like, I'm really sorry. I shot you in the gut from, you know, a hundred yards away in the dark with a handgun, you know? Uh, and the, the last couple lines that we'll do and him have is he, he tells Rafferstein, you know, go ahead. It's okay. You know, don't, don't feel bad. Basically he says, carry on a futile existence. And hmm. it's like, is he talking about like, just keep being a cog in the machine and it's like he sort of has a realization on his like a real deathbed you know you know moment oh and then uh Rothenstein says i missed my chance right so they they have such a tangled complicated relationship with war and people and that's why they're so compelling to watch each other because they they get each other regardless of national origin they're, they are uh, people of the same life, which is the life of war. And they see the bad, even though they see the duty, um, you know, between, uh, to, to their country, you know, and their patriotism driving all of it. Um, and so aside from that, those are just two characters in this movie. And that's, uh, it's a great ensemble cast. You could spend an entire time just watching Marichal and like studying yeah. him and breaking that down. Um, for sure. I would recommend it to others. I will probably rewatch this like, I'll probably rewatch it like at least once a year. And again, uh, like you, Justin, I feel like I need to watch it sooner rather than later to pick up on, on some of the stuff that, that really grabbed me. Uh, but yeah, until I feel like I get it more, I, it's worth turning over. I think again and again, we, uh, reached the end of episode seven, but it was, it was fun. Uh, thank you so much, Gary and Greg for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. It yeah, was a lot of thank fun. you. Yeah, I uh, loved your perspective. Um, next week, Justin, we are coming up on another big literary adaptation in okay. Wuthering Heights. Uh, and we have a guest again, and it's yep. Annie. She's coming back to give oh, her uh, uh, the Wuthering Heights thing. Are you uh, feeling good about breaking that down next week? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard to top this week. But yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, bye. Let the movie speak. You understand that if you do not obey my order now, I'll have to shoot. Hey, since you're still here and still listening, thank you, by the way. We'd like to ask an additional favor of you. We have social media. It's a thing on the internet. And all you need to do is find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and like and subscribe. I know this is annoying, but we have to ask you because we want more people to hear the show. In addition to that, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.